Welcome to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. Hi, and welcome back to Health Talks Now, a podcast brought to you by Baptist Health. Today on the show, I'm really excited to talk about something that's taking over social media. If you're an adult on TikTok, you've very likely seen the surge of videos about adult ADHD. It's gone viral and content creators are raising awareness, which is causing people to self-diagnose and wonder if they may be affected. These TikTok videos are gaining media attention all over the country from the New York Times to Mashable, Vox, and more. Today, I'm joined on the phone with Dr. Jonathan Martin, psychiatrist with Baptist Health Medical Group and an expert on ADHD, so we can dig in and ask the questions that matter. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm excited about this conversation. I know just in my personal friend group, this is something that's gotten a lot of attention lately. So let's start right out the gate with just a quick overview of what is ADHD. Years ago, growing up, I remember hearing ADD. Is that just an evolution of the term or is there a difference there? Walk us through kind of the basics. Okay. So it is kind of an evolution of the term. So ADD is a subgroup of ADHD. There's two types. You have ADHD combined type, which means hyperactivity, and then you have just ADHD inattentive type, which would be what we would refer to as ADD before. Okay. So hyperactivity is included with the combined type, and it is just like you expect hyperactive, restless, getting up and down, and then the more common type probably for adults is just ADD, which is without the hyperactivity, just the concentration and attention deficit. Okay, that makes sense. Another buzzword I've been hearing a lot is neurodivergent. Can you explain that term? So neurodivergent is kind of a, it is a popular term lately that encompasses a lot of different psychiatric diagnoses, but it basically means that your thought process or your overall concentration and view on things is a little bit different. So people use that term to refer to autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, and then a variety of other diagnoses and kind of symptoms that would relate to the way that you think or perceive things. Okay. And so I guess the opposite of that would be called neurotypical. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the symptoms then. We've mentioned a couple just in the in the first question there, but we know that these follow the DSM criteria for diagnosis. And if you're not familiar with that as you're listening, that is kind of the manual of criteria gathered that is used by mental health professionals to diagnose a variety of different behavioral and mood disorders. So what are some of those classic symptoms of ADHD and how is it diagnosed? So some of the classic symptoms we did talk about earlier, but inattention is the main one, and that is pretty self-explanatory, but it tends to be more related to long-term or sustained attention or being on task for 
a longer period of time. Impulsiveness is another common symptom of ADHD. And that sounds pretty vague, but it can be related to things like job loss, relational issues, recklessness, restlessness, executive dysfunction, which is another big and vague term, but generally just means your working memory, shifting tasks, initiation of tasks, inhibiting yourself, so stopping things or controlling your behaviors, and then long periods of focusing on tasks or organizing activities. It can also have emotional dysregulation, which just means you get frustrated easy, have outbursts, low frustration tolerance, and then difficulty making decisions can be a symptom of ADHD. One of the videos I've seen a lot on TikTok that that talks about this is it shows a woman in you know, her 30s, 40s, and she's starting to clean the house. And she starts one task, and then she sees something else, gets distracted, goes and stops that task, starts a new task. And before she knows it, she's gotten 15 or 20 tasks started, but nothing completed. Is that part of the inattention? Yeah, that would be, I'd say, inattention and executive dysfunction. So that would be time management or setting goals and accomplishing Mm -hmm. those before moving on to the next goal. And the inattentive part would be where you see it, and so then you get distracted to go do that. So they both kind of play a role with that. Right. Okay. And so then obviously there are criteria here of, you know, people may have difficulty focusing or they may have some of these symptoms and not necessarily meet the criteria for ADHD. So what is kind of the bar for the list of symptoms and then, you know, versus someone who may just have a couple of symptoms but not be classified as ADHD? So I think it's hard to determine because we all have all these symptoms sometimes. Right. And sometimes we have a couple and those are lifelong and sometimes they resolve over time. The, The bar would be just persistent difficulty in maintaining your activities of daily living or functioning on a day-to-day basis. So once it starts to impair your life in a meaningful way, that's generally where we set the bar for a diagnosis. Even if we all kind of have some of these or you may have a good amount of those, they may resolve based on life situation or circumstance. So if it's persistent and it's impeding your life in a drastic way, that's when we make the call. Okay. So as you're looking at this in adults, does it present differently than maybe it would if you are looking to diagnose a child? Are you seeing different uh, characterizations of the symptoms? You do see a lot of the same symptoms. I'll say that. So the the baseline symptoms are generally the same, but they may present differently. So okay. whereas a child might not be able to sit through a lecture, maybe getting out of his seat, maybe getting in trouble for talking, can't sit and do homework, can't finish an assignment. Mm-hmm. Adults, it presents more so with relationships and careers and maybe other activities of daily living. So, you know, unable to sit and finish the tasks you have at work, not okay. finishing by your deadline, getting speeding tickets, being impulsive, being more forgetful terminating relationships early because the sustained like focus and impulsivity isn't there. Okay. Is ADHD typically present from childhood and it just goes undiagnosed in adult into adulthood or is this something that can develop later in life? 
So generally you'll have some symptoms in childhood, even if you aren't diagnosed. Mm-hmm. It may be that you cope more appropriately or circumstances are different and the symptoms don't present themselves in a meaningful way until your level of demand is higher. So oh. until you have a lot more on your plate. But there are some theories that there might be a later onset version of ADHD, which data behind it is kind of, I'll say, questionable. People are arguing about that right now. There's some good data. There's some people who refute that, but there could be a late onset version. So then why does this go undiagnosed into adulthood? Like you said, is it that the symptoms were dismissed or that maybe they weren't as prevalent until there was more responsibility on the person? Or is it a generational thing? Like the generation that we were raised in decades ago, there may have been a lack of awareness or a lack of acceptance for ADHD as an issue. I imagine it's just difficult to pinpoint and easy to dismiss. I'd say it's a combination of those, and you're right about that. We didn't really look for ADHD as much in the past. We didn't understand as much about it. And a lot of it was probably written off as like normal childhood behaviors. Even if those behaviors got to the point of being, you know, impeding on that child's education or their day-to-day life. So the understanding of ADHD has grown. We also see that it's mistaken a lot for other disorders sometimes, like anxiety or mood disorders. And then the fact that some kids can cope better with their symptoms and the level of demand they have at that time until they get to adults when they show to be more prevalent or more burdensome. I just read a study actually that said ADHD diagnosis among adults are growing four times faster than ADHD diagnosis among children in the U.S. And I thought that was really fascinating that whether that reflects more self-awareness, you know, in adults that they're able to evaluate their own behavior and then seek help, whereas children, you know, maybe don't even know to ask and their parents, like you said, can easily dismiss it as just childhood kids being kids. But I thought that was fascinating that people are, are actually recognizing and reaching out and going and getting the diagnosis. I think that's a big part. And as an adult, you have more ability to get your own care and manage your own symptoms and really relate to others what kind of an impact they're having. So that self-awareness and understanding is a big part. You know, I think just talking, I'm sitting here thinking that there's also a lot of these symptoms can easily be blamed on the self you know, as lack of motivation or lack of follow through, or it's very easy to look away from the clinical aspect of this and really just kind of put some blame on self and say, well, if I just woke up earlier, I wouldn't be late all the time. And always trying to find ways to overcome and just do better on your own when in reality, there could be something like this causing this executive dysfunction and inattention. And that's really making it challenging to achieve those things. Right, and I think if you, you know, it's okay to look at some of that being on you because yeah. taking personal responsibility is important, but if you try to make adjustments and you keep having failures of follow-through or issues, then maybe it's time to look into something behind that. 
So then what is the difference? We mentioned that that ADHD can easily be mistaken for other mood disorders like depression or anxiety. What is the difference then if you're looking at someone who maybe thinks that they have anxiety or has been diagnosed with anxiety or depression versus ADHD? And then as a follow-up to that, if someone has been diagnosed with anxiety, how do they maybe approach the possibility of being screened for ADHD? So I think it can be difficult. I actually see that a lot. A lot of my adults that have ADHD have been misdiagnosed with anxiety, sometimes their whole life, sometimes since childhood, sometimes just as an adult, mm-hmm. because a lot of the symptoms do overlap. Yeah. And I think anxiety can be... a kind of a coping mechanism for ADHD because if you're worried about everything all the time, you're more Mm. likely to get those things done. Oh, wow. You also get a little more overwhelmed because you have so much going on in your head and it's really hard to maintain that focus on one thing because you're thinking about a lot of different things or you're going a lot of different directions. And so that does increase anxiety. So sometimes if you've been treated for anxiety and you haven't had a significant response to you know, most of the traditional treatments of anxiety, I think it will be good to get tested for ADHD mm-hmm. and really just talk to your primary care provider or mental health care provider about that and mm-hmm. they can refer you to testing or to someone who can evaluate you further. In mood disorders, it's a little bit more difficult, but if a lot of the mood changes come from things like not getting things done, not being reliable, you know, having impulsivity and getting frustrated easily, which leads to poor mood or depressed mood. You can look at the cause behind it and you could start thinking about ADHD. That's a great point. I mentioned earlier at, at the top of the episode that a lot of people were taking to social media and then subsequently self-diagnosing, some in jest, uh, but some, you know, in all seriousness saying, wow, I, this makes total sense. I, I've had ADHD. Who knew? But what is the danger of self-diagnosing versus seeking out a professional? I think the danger of it is you, you may use it as a crutch or you may rely on that or have fears that you maybe shouldn't be having, you're worrying about being labeled as something. And also self-diagnosis, it's good to a point because you know yourself more than other people. Mm -hmm. But to put it into context, into a diagnostic context, it's recommended and more appropriate to get a professional to weigh in. It's fine to say that I have some of these symptoms that mm-hmm. I relate to and I feel like this could be something that's going on and then allow a professional to go further and evaluate you and ask the you know follow-up questions and put it into context of mental health so that they can make an accurate judgment. That's smart. If someone's listening and they're like, you know, I can handle this, I'll I'll make lists, you know, I'll put myself on a an improvement plan, so to speak. What are the potential consequences or complications of letting ADHD go untreated? In other words, what kind of fallout do we see in adults who are living with ADHD but not seeking any help to actually manage or treat it? But I think those are good things to try, and those are things that are, are recommended for ADHD if you don't want to seek professional treatment or you don't want to use the pharmacologic measures. But if those aren't working and it remains untreated for adults, it can have some consequences that can be pretty impactful to every part of your life. So mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about 
occupational mm-hmm. issues earlier, you know, not meeting deadlines, being late to work, being forgetful about tasks that you're having to do, not being able to focus and maintain during your work. And a lot of times that impulsivity can lead to lots of jobs that you didn't last long at. It can lead to relationship issues. Really due to the same impulsivity, it's hard to, if there's any kind of frustration or burden on the relationship at baseline, Mm -hmm. then people with ADHD tend to terminate that relationship prematurely maybe. So there may be a lot of, Mm. a person with a lot of relationships that they've gone through in a short period of time, it can lead to anxiety and depression due to having failures in these other aspects of your life. Low self-esteem, feeling like it's all you and you can't do things, you can't accomplish things, and having that self-blame. Adults with ADHD tend to have more traffic accidents or citations, so speeding tickets or minor collisions or, or minor accidents. And there is a study out of Europe where people with ADHD, adults with ADHD, have increased mortality rates, probably due to some of these impulsive and yeah. risky behaviors and inattentiveness. That makes sense. It's really fascinating how how easy it is to, I think, take on, like we were talking about, take on that blame and say, you know, if only I could just be better, <laughs> if I could just get it together. But how if you overlook that, the clinical implications, and you don't treat the root of the problem, that it can really just spiral and spiderweb into so many areas of your life, financially, relationally, into your physical and mental health. So it's fascinating to me. But I want to get into some of the nuances with you now. So let's talk about ADHD and caffeine. What is the relationship there? I'd say the big one is kind of self-medication. Okay. Um, Caffeine can help you stay focused a little bit more. It can make you maintain attention better than you would at baseline. And some people with ADHD who use caffeine, it actually does improve, but they tend to overuse the caffeine. So they're getting more than a normal person would in a day. And then for some people, it can kind of slow things down too much and have the opposite effect. Hmm. So that's what I see anyway in the clinic. What are the risks of over-caffeinating? There could be some risk, you know, based on your health issues that you have going in. If you're overusing caffeine and you have hypertension or you have a high heart rate yeah. or you're at risk of anxiety or you have anxiety, it can worsen all of those things. There is a crash. You can become reliant and then yeah. at the end of the day not get anything done because you're crashing from the caffeine. Ah, interesting. So if people are using the caffeine and it's positively improving their symptoms, they think, you know, they've kind of found the magic ticket and then they get a little bit dependent on it and take it a little too far. Yeah. Gotcha. I want to look now at the difference in ADHD symptoms, if there are any, between the sexes. For example, you know, would we expect different presentation in someone who identifies or presents as male versus female? I did read that boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than girls. And I just wondered, does that mean that ADHD is more prevalent in boys or that they're presenting with more visible symptoms? So it is not more prevalent. It's the same frequency in both genders, but there are differences. So males tend to have more hyperactivity and they 
disruptive behavior with ADHD, whereas females, they don't have the hyperactivity as often, or when they do have it, it's not as severe, and they tend to have more learning problems, and they have more internalizing of their problems. So I think it's just more apparent Mm -hmm. in males, and that's why they're diagnosed more often. And some of that's probably cultural, too, or, you know, societal, that the old adage kind of boys will be boys, their rambunctious behavior is more tolerated than, say, if a girl classmate or a peer of theirs were acting the same way and girls are more taught to be delicate and, you know, mind the rules and be a little gentler than boys are. So part of that's probably, you know, they may be experiencing the same symptoms, what I hear you saying, but they express those differently based on the expectations and the the kind of cultural norms. Yeah, that's exactly right. And males do tend to have a higher level of impairment to day-to-day life with ADHD. So it might get to the level where intervention is needed more often, but I think a big part of it is cultural, like how we're raised boys are rambunctious. They're going to go, you know, be wild and jump around and do all that, and girls are supposed to be, quote, ladylike. Right. Looking at as these children grow and become adults, do you see any correlation between people who do have ADHD and sensory issues like overstimulation or having a really hard time when there's too much sensory input? So I do see that they get overstimulated, but I don't think that it's really due to sensory issues as the cause. It's okay. more that there's a lot going on, they're thinking about a lot of things, they're kind of like multitasking in their head and then having to like juggle, mm. you know, trying to pay attention to a couple different things and that can get burdensome, especially if there's a lot going on and you have a lot to think about or a lot to do at that moment. It's easy to get overwhelmed and overstimulated if there's a lot of exogenous you know, noises or yeah. sounds or talking or action. It's almost like I'm envisioning as you're talking, having multiple tabs open in an internet browser <laughs> and yeah. that being kind of like your brain where you've got all these things running in the background and you're switching around like, oh, now I need this. Wait, wait, what about this? Let me flip over to that. Yeah, and then, you know, if you throw in trying to juggle all of that and then there's music playing or people talking or there's, some kind of event going on, it can be difficult. So then it's easy to feel overstimulated, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's due to the sensory issues themselves, like the sounds or the sights or, you know, the activities. Right. It's more so being overwhelmed with everything that is going on. That makes so much sense. You know, I experience that as a mom. I have two toddlers and there will be times where I am so deeply invested <laughs> in what's going on in my own head that you know, the song they're listening to and the two of them talking over top of the song when me cooking and something happening in the kitchen, it feels like there is so much going on when in reality, probably 90% of it is happening in my head where no one else can see or experience it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So let's then talk about causation. Let's back up. And if the sensory issues are not the cause, but just kind of a an accelerant, (laughs) then what actually does cause ADHD? And are there risk factors that people need to know about? 
There's not really a particular cause okay. um, for ADHD, but there are some contributing factors that increase risk. So there is a genetic component to ADHD. We do know that. We see it in families. We see it in siblings. We see it in parents and their children. So there's a big part that genetics play. Mm -hmm. There are risk factors. They're hard to really pinpoint, but there's some good data about some different types of things that you may experience in development and childhood that may increase your risk of ADHD. So mm. particulate matter, which by that they mean air pollution uh, exposure early in life, yeah. and your utero tends to increase risks that kids will have ADHD in that environment. Exposure to toxins developmentally during pregnancy can increase risk of ADHD. Pregnancy and delivery complications themselves actually increase wow. risk for ADHD, and that can be anything from eclampsia, poor maternal health, older maternal age, the duration of labor, and low birth weight, and then fetal exposure to alcohol, which kind of goes into toxins a little bit, but that wow. increases your risk as well. And then maternal smoking is a risk factor for ADHD. Okay. That's interesting that something so seemingly minor or seemingly unremoved, I guess, or removed from the adult or the, the functioning child can have such a great impact on their quality of life and on, on their outcomes. Well, if someone is listening and they're resonating with what you're saying and they think they may have ADHD, how do they go about getting diagnosed and treated? Where do they start? I think the, the best thing to start would be to go to your primary care provider or your mental health provider if you have one and just talk about your concern and just bring it up with them discuss you know what symptoms and signs that you're experiencing that you think may be related and then get a clinical evaluation and a good history the provider may then refer you to testing there are some tests that they don't diagnose ADHD as it's a clinical diagnosis but they help kind of lead us that direction and they tell us differentiate a little bit if it is more so ADHD or if it's something more like anxiety or okay. some kind of sensory or learning issue and they're pretty simple and quick but I think the first place to start would just be whatever care provider you have be it primary care provider or a mental health care provider just start there and talk to them. Okay and then kind of on the flip side if someone is listening to this and it's resonating with someone that they love do you have any advice or tips about how they can voice their concerns or have a conversation about ADHD respectfully and maybe encourage that person to look into some resources? I think that the good thing is ADHD has been a little bit less stigmatized yeah. recently than it has in the past. So a lot of people probably wouldn't take it poorly if, if you just mentioned it. You know, have you thought about mm -hmm. maybe having ADHD before? But I think a good place to start would just be to mention some of the concerns and some of the symptoms, like yeah. bring that up. Like, do you realize that you're forgetful a lot or that you miss assignments a lot? Like, what do you think that is? Yeah. And, you know, have you considered maybe that you have ADHD? Because it does seem like you struggle a lot in these different areas. And then just go from there. I love that call to self-reflection. What do you think that's about? So, you know, kind of involving the other person in the conversation rather than just simply talking at them. So if someone does take that step, then what treatment options are available? How can someone cope with this condition daily, 
Let's start first with, I know you mentioned that there can be kind of some self-directed just tips and tricks that people can try before they move into something more clinical or pharmacological, but what's your take on how somebody can cope? There's a couple of different ways. So you kind of have to know yourself and how you function best. And I think that's a, a learning curve for all of us, how we learn best, how we function best, what we need to get things done. So things like, do I need to take breaks? Like give yourself a 10 minute break here and there. Don't try to just you know, power through the whole task or the whole assignment. Do I need to make lists? Am I forgetful? Do I need to check things off? Do I need to set reminders on my phone because, you know, I have an issue with due dates or bills Mm -hmm. or things like that. Do I need to limit the amount that I take on on a daily basis or the amount of tasks I take on at work? Should I, you know, limit it and do a certain amount before I take on another one? some of those things and it's different person to person Mm -hmm. because you know like I said we all learn different ways and we all function and maintain in different ways so knowing yourself and what works best for you is the best place to start with what coping skills would work for you you just heard my alarm go off a couple minutes ago (laughs) I've got alarm set all day to remind me of different things so I think that's a great tip but now let's talk about some of the more provider introduced tactics for treatment? So there's, I'd say there's probably two main categories. There's therapy and then there's medication management. Medication management is what we all know about, what we all hear about, what we think of when we think of ADHD. But I'd like to kind of reiterate, there's a lot of different options even with medication management. We all know of the stimulant options and the various drugs for that, but there's also non-stimulant medications that we can use to treat ADHD. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of things is therapy. So therapy has been proven to be beneficial. CBT, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. If someone has been, I know we talked about people who have been maybe misdiagnosed with anxiety. Say someone's been misdiagnosed that way with anxiety and they are being treated for that with an SSRI. Does that have any positive impact on ADHD? For example, is that masking any of the symptoms or maybe improving the symptoms, but being reevaluated for ADHD and properly medicated could improve even further? It can help some with ADHD. So it can help with the anxiety maybe that the ADHD is causing. It can help you from getting frustrated and anxious as easily. You can maybe pick your battles a little bit better about what you get anxious or upset about. And so it can make things smoother. It will likely not make things marginally better from the concentration, you know, standpoint or the standpoint of not getting things done, being forgetful. And so the baseline things that cause the anxiety may still be there. Okay. But the day-to-day may be smoother and easier to deal with. So do you find that people end up needing to be medicated for both sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes if you you have the anxiety and it's a big part and ADHD is treated, sometimes anxiety improves completely and you don't have to be treated for anxiety. You can just be treated specifically for the ADHD. But sometimes they're comorbid, so that's another issue is that they're hard to differentiate, you know, which is which or if they're both there, but they can both exist in the same individual. So sometimes you do need to treat both diagnoses. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I think what I keep going back to as as you're talking is just having that relationship with a provider that who knows you and who you can trust and being able to have those conversations and then check in as your treatment progresses to kind of course correct or evaluate what's going on and how it's impacting you and what progress you're seeing. The last question I want to ask you about about treatment and medication is are these medications addictive or can they have adverse effects? So both, they can have both. So the stimulants, so the things that they're controlled medications like your Adderall, your methylphenidate, the classic things that you hear about with ADHD, they do have an addictive potential. Generally, if used appropriately and for the right diagnosis of ADHD, Mm -hmm. that risk is more minimal. There are medications, like I said, that we use that are not stimulant and they do not generally have an addictive potential. Okay. The other question you asked me was about mm-hmm. the side effects. So they can have adverse side effects. So stimulant medication can increase heart rate. It can increase anxiety. So specifically mm-hmm. in people who have been misdiagnosed with ADHD who also have anxiety that may be contributing more so to ADHD symptoms, it can increase that. Okay. They are activating medication, so sometimes you can get headaches or reduced appetite and that just has to be kind of a trial process to see which ones are going to cause that and what you can do to mitigate those symptoms. The non-stimulant options, they have pretty similar side effect profiles. You can have increased uh, hot flashes and sweating sometimes with treatment for ADHD Mm -hmm. as well. Hmm. Well, Dr. Martin, this has been really helpful. So thank you for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me today. Oh, no, thanks again for having me. I enjoyed it. Of course. Again, if any of this resonated with you today, be sure you're teaming up with a professional who can properly diagnose and guide you through the process. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Martin's office, we'll be linking that information in the show notes of this episode. For more information about our behavioral health services at Baptist Health or to find a provider near you, visit baptisthealth.com. Be sure to share this episode with a friend and tag us on social media. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Health Talks Now. Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life and protect your long-term health. Visit baptisthealth.com to hear our other podcasts learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health, be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.